Welcome back, Avatar fam, to Avatar the Podcast. Comic edition. Comic edition, yes. We can only say that, what, four more times? I know, like we're that? almost done. So close, yet so, so, so far. So close. I know. Today we're coming back with North and South Part 3. But before we go into the episode, we're going to read some five-star reviews. Personally, one of my favorite segments of the episode. I don't know about you, Greg. I think everyone knows my addiction with reading these reviews in terms of I check it several times, putting it mildly a day. <laughs> yep. Always excited to read these. Our first review for the day comes in from my dear friend, 1-857-853-753-677437. And they write, what an absolute masterpiece. This podcast has gotten me through many, many, many long hours at work. I have probably listened to Zuko Alone and Bitter Work episodes 10 plus times. Oh, those are some of my favorites They're too. They're very good ones. The podcast is top tier and has some groundbreaking <laughs> hosts. Oh, oh, I see what you did there. I like it. Here's my top 10 of everything. Number one, the episode Zuko Alone. Number two, Iroh's Wisdom. Number three, mm -hmm. Appa's Saddle. That's interesting. Okay. I, yep. I would agree with that. Number four, Toph. Number five, The Blue Spirit. Now, is that... I have a question for you. One eight five seven eight five three seven five three three six seven seven four three seven. Is that the episode or the character? I think they mean both. Maybe both. Number six, Zuko's Daddy Issues. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Number seven, Water Tribe. Cool emoji, double pointy emoji. Nice. Number eight, Momo. Number nine, the Jasmine Dragon. And number 10, Zhao's Sideburns. Oh, man. That is, as everyone knows, absolutely on my list as well. I'm glad someone else agrees. Yep. That is a top tier, top 10. It absolutely is. Thank you so much for leaving the five-star review and opening up our top five to a top 10. And not just for characters, but for literally everything. I might take yes. a note on that for maybe a later episode. Hmm. hmm. Maybe. Our next review comes from Tallulah123679, who writes, I love Avatar! Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. LOL, hashtag water tribe. We have a lot of water tribe love yeah, in today's episode. I love it. They continue by saying, I love Avatar show. Podcast, totally recommend. Hashtag Appa. Hashtag Aang. Hashtag Katara. Hashtag Sokka. Hashtag Toph. I will take that as a top five. Mm -hmm. They continue to say, I would love to live in Avatar world. I would love to be a waterbender. Hashtag no Ozai. No Ozai. Indeed. When I first read that, I read it as Newsai and I giggled. Oh. <laughs> Newsai. News I love it. I would also love to live in the Avatar world, but mm -hmm. only if I was a bender. I could live as a non-bender. I don't know. I don't know if I could compromise that. I need, I lived my life wishing I could step into a closet and go to another world like Narnia. So if I'm there, I might as well have the full package. You That's know? fair. That's fair. I think, honestly, the comics have changed my mind about that. Like, I, I would have agreed mm -hmm. with you pre-comics. But just seeing Benders do construction work and do, like, brute work like that, <laughs> I'm not interested in at all. Greg's like, I'm not going to have the 9 to 5 bending yeah, life. Thanks very much. No, thanks. No, thank you. <laughs> I could go either way. If, if I'm in there and I have bending abilities, awesome. If I don't, if I get like a cool space sword or anything else, mm -hmm. I'm okay with it. Greg's actually a boomerang guy at it's heart. True. It's true. I absolutely am. <laughs> the next and final review that we're going to be reading for this episode comes from, and I think we might have read it, a previous review from this individual, but we have a question in there from the update and I wanted to kind of bring that up mm. a little bit. Comes from our dear friend, H-D-I-D-K-K-D. -K -K -D. I'm going to call him H-Did. Okay. And H-Did writes, Hello, Greg and Acorn. My brother introduced me to the podcast and I was hooked. I finished all the episodes from the very beginning in about three-ish weeks. I loved getting through all the main series and the comics and I'm looking forward to Korra. There's been something I've been thinking about in the episode, The Avatar and the Fire Lord, when Fire Lord Sozin came to help Roku fight the volcano, you can see Sozin bending the gas away from the volcano, seemingly cooling down the surface. My theory is firebenders can bend flammable gases and ignite them rather than bending fire itself. What are your thoughts on this? Thanks for the amazing podcast. Whoa. Okay, let me process that for a second. I've seen the episode enough times that I'm like playing it back in my head right now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I know you're right. He does. I always interpreted that as being bending the, I guess, lava 
yeah. under the surface and that having a reaction to the gases, the currents, how much is coming out. But I love the thought of them being able to bend flammable gases. That's kind of, I mean, we talked about this in the past in the podcast, the fact that there's so much overlap with the bending, the bending styles and the bending elements that sometimes you could really like go down a rabbit hole of the different ways that different benders can bend things that start merging to another element, but it's not quite. Yeah. This could be one of those. I always viewed it as he's bending the flames around the gas and he's able to manipulate Mm -hmm. that, which manipulates the gas above it. That's kind of like how I interpreted that. Yeah, that's basically same. Yeah, that's been how I've always looked at it. I don't know. I think you're, you're right. We did talk about this much, much, much earlier in, in our adventures, let's call it. Uh-huh. I don't think firebenders can, in my opinion, bend gases. I think it's exclusively airbenders. Uh, but then there's also combustion, man. So, But that's not really bending a gas, though. No, it's not a gas, but it is something that's not just straight fire. Right, but he's... Yeah, yeah. there's always a lot of gray area with bending and the limitations, except Earth. I feel like Earth is fairly straightforward. Mm-hmm. Anything that contains Earth in it, if you can figure out how to, you can bend it. Whereas... Yep. And water. I think water is fairly solid. <laughs> Even though it's not solid, it's liquid. <laughs> but I feel like that's a, it's got a pretty solid foundation. You can freeze... And thaw out ice with water. Uh-huh. And that's about it. Yeah. But fire is like, eh, and air too, because they're so close. Like, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, there's a lot of overlap there. That's a very interesting, everyone who's listening right now, if you have an opinion about this, please let us know in another five-star review. Yes. Or you can write to us at avatarthepodcast at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can also tweet at us at podcast avatar. If you have a thought, if you have an opinion, let us know. Yes, please do so. That's it for the five-star reviews for this week. We got a couple more next week. Can't read them all in one sitting. These were great reviews. Very well-timed as well with all the hashtag Water Tribe love because we are going into our third and final issue of North and South set in the South Pole with our Water Tribe friends. Mm -hmm. So without further ado, this is North and South part three, or as we like to call it, Family Dinner. That's right. This is our last issue written by Jean Luen Yang with art by Gurihiru. So everyone, ah, take a moment. I know. Appreciate the journey. Brace yourself. Appreciate where we've come. Brace yourself for the change <laughs> with our next episode and our next and final podcast trilogy. Mm-hmm. The story picks up the morning after Gilak's imprisonment and Hakoda's stabbing. Toph and her lily-livered metal-bending students help with the construction work left behind for the soon-to-be South Pole factory. Southern Water Tribe citizens gather at the gate nearby to continue protesting the building of the factory. The metal-bending students do their best, but the construction doesn't go as smoothly as they were hoping, none of them used to the snow or suited to building elaborate structures. When the metal beams come crashing down on top of them for a third time that day, Toph keeps them from getting squished and moves the beams to the side. The students lament the working situations, and Toph agrees that the situation is tricky because of the politics involved. None of the Southern Water Tribe wants to help, and the Northern Water Tribe can't help. Toph and her metal-bending students are all that's left. Not even Melina, who stands nearby talking with Sokka, can help. Melina notes the protesters at the fence and muses out loud to Sokka that maybe it would be better if she left. Her presence is causing just too much tension. But Sokka replies that she has to stick around. She's the only one who knows the construction plans from beginning to end. Besides, his father is making headway with getting the other Southerners on board with the plan. The rest of the tribe will eventually come around when they come to understand the benefits of the Southern Reconstruction Project, protesters included. At the Southern Waterbending Academy, Paku continues to attempt to teach Siku and Sura the art of waterbending with a demonstration of a form. He encourages them to imitate him, but they refuse, continuing to claim they are not waterbenders, even though we've seen them waterbend multiple times. Mm-hmm. Paku despairs that he's had to tolerate three weeks of this difficult behavior and calls Aang and Katara into the school. Paku introduces the children to the Avatar and Aang and Katara begin waterbending together to encourage the children to open up to the idea of waterbending. But even though the little girls do admit they're waterbenders finally and are impressed with the Avatar and his quote-unquote friend who helped win the war even though they are sweeties, as we know. Mm -hmm. They reveal that their mother made them promise to never waterbend or tell anyone about their abilities out of fear of the Fire Nation. All right, so this is a nice little opening here. And I actually love the fact that we have kind of a 
it's not really a foil, but it's a comparison. It's kind of a contrast to Katara's situation, how she was the last waterbender and her mother concealed her identity, concealed her existence yeah. to the Fire Nation and let herself get taken, claiming to be the final waterbender. And it's now present day and these two little waterbending girls have been told by their mother, do not tell anyone you're a waterbender. And we have to make sure that you stay safe because the Fire Nation could come take you away like they did all the others. I think it'd be really interesting for Katara to witness this, having been through everything that she's been. So she understands where they're coming from. But at the same time, she's like, I could see that frustration being like, no, it's okay. We saved the day. There's no Fire Nation who's going to come take you away. It's still very naive on Katara's part to be like, no, we we won. We are uh -huh. victorious. You'll never be taken away from your family again. Yeah. It's like, well... You never know. You really never know. There's like a naiveness to that. And there's a like an arrogance almost. Yeah. It's a really good way of illustrating how deep psychological trauma can go. Yeah. These girls are what, seven years old, seven, eight, nine-ish. And their whole life, they've been told to fear the Fire Nation and to fear showing their water bending. So they even acknowledge later in the scene, like maybe sending them to the school and trying to get them to water bend is a little much little too big of a change yeah. because they've spent their whole life to this point being told showing your water bending is bad. It's unsafe. And yet they're water bending in the middle of town in broad daylight. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's like the psychology of kids. That's right? fair. That's fair. That's very fair. I feel like I'm getting stuck in this moment because we know mild Cora spoiler here and mild imbalance spoiler here that there's going to be a rift that forms between benders and non-benders. And so mm -hmm. Katara's like, no, the firebenders won't get you. Like, we save the day. It's like, well, there's a new threat. A whole new a dynamic. A whole new dynamic <laughs> boiling right now. And it's not the firebenders necessarily. Yeah. So yeah. it's interesting. But I think I was ultimately looking for something more from this moment from Katara than that motherly, like, it's okay. Like, it'll all be fine. Like, I wanted to see... I think more of her reflecting on how these kids were like her when she was mm. a kid, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. It was implied in the scene, but it wasn't something that she acknowledged, which yeah. would have been nice. I would have liked a heart to heart with her and Sokka or her and Aang about this yeah. right here. Yeah, I agree. As the children run from the room, Aang and Katara wonder if the waterbending school is just too big of a change for them. Hakoda enters, still bandaged and walking with the help of a cane, and joins them. He tells the group that he was out on his morning walk and wanted to see what everyone was up to. Katara and Aang leave with him. And Paku, he's just like, I'll keep working with the kids, which is a testament to his patience and how far he has come. He's, he's teaching not only two little girls, yeah. he's also spent three weeks on this and won't give up. That's very fair. I still can't believe Hakoda lives. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to get over this hump. He's alive. And he, yeah. he should be dead as far as yeah. I'm concerned. He was even like, man, Katara, your healing is top notch. Yeah. Oh, man. All right. I'm, I'll move on from this. But every time he walks in, I'm like, all right. I wrote in my he brain that you died. Stabbing. Yeah. That's fair. Yes. That's fair. I do very, very much enjoy Paku's transformation right now. Mm -hmm. He's still a grumpy old man, but I think he's aware that he's a grumpy old man. So he can kind of take himself out of that at that point. Yeah. He's mellowed out a lot since getting back with Grand Grand. Yeah. I mean, the love of his life. Yeah. As Katara, Aang, and Hakoda walk along the new avenues of the Blossoming City, Hakoda tells them again of his desire for the South to join forces with the other nations in an effort to rebuild their society. After seeing the way Team Avatar worked together the previous day, he's even more convinced that the Southern Water Tribe would benefit from collaborating with the other nations. Katara challenges this position, saying it's very different when close friends work together, there are other people like Malik in the world who don't have the tribe's best interest at heart. But Hakoda stands his ground, pointing to what just happened in Paku's class a few moments earlier. A northerner, a southerner, and an air nomad, all working together to recover a tradition that was almost lost. He informs them that he's invited the Earth King and the Fire Lord to a conference that will take place that evening. He intends to talk to the two rulers about international collaboration and asks that Aang and Katara join them. Even here, like, I think... Hakoda is just too much of an idealist because he's pointing out like, yeah, we can all work together. And Katara is like, yeah, but the people who've been working together are like good friends. And he's like, no, but like what just happened? A northerner is... Yeah, no, you're still family. Yeah. 
You're talking about your father-in-law, your daughter, and your son-in-law. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> These are not points. strangers. And even the people that he's inviting, Earth King Kue and Zuko, the Fire Lord, again, all very close-knit people. Yeah. So I like his hope and I like his wanting to make the world a better place. But at the same time, as we know in our own world, there are many corrupt people out there in power wanting to just take advantage of situations and people for their own gain. I think we're seeing a bit where Katara gets her seeing the best in someone. I think she gets from her father. We always talked about Uh her being so much like her mother. And this is the first time that we really see a trait of hers exhibited from one of her parents. That's not Kaya. Yeah. No, I'm glad you pointed that out. I agree. I think her belief in humanity and her idealism definitely comes from her dad. Yeah, for sure. I like that because visually Sokka looks like a coda. And Katara looks like Kaya. And we've always, I mm-hmm. think in even our podcast, we've talked about these similarities and we haven't had that like cross contamination for lack of a better term in terms of parental <laughs> influence. Gene contamination. Gene, I don't know. That sounds weird. That sounds terrible. I should put it a different way. But, but uh, you know, like it's cool to see that they're not just the favorite of one parent and they're right. a clone of that parent, that there is some sort of melding of ideologies and personalities. Yeah, I do like that. It makes it more realistic too, because we think of Sokka and Hakoda having the same sense of humor, the same yeah. ingenuity, but you're right. Like, Katara shares a lot of traits with her dad too, mm-hmm. and it's it's nice to see. It makes me want to know how Sokka and Kaya are similar. Like, if only... I was thinking about that as you were talking, because I can't just concentrate on one thing at any given point <laughs> in my life. I uh, think that Sokka gets his bravery from Kaya. Oh, man. Yeah. I think you're right. That's yeah. so nice. That's the only thing I can think. We know so little about Kaya anyways, but that was one of the things that really jumped into my mind. Sokka brings it to points of idiocy at times. <laughs> uh-huh. Being brave to a fault. Yeah, exactly. But I think it, it stems from his mother. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Well, with that little heartwarming realization. Mm-hmm. We're going to go into our next scene, which happens at sunset. Bring on the war balloons. Oh my gosh, I know. <laughs> <laughs> that evening, Zuko and Kue arrive in their respective airships, which, yes, were all based on the war balloons mm-hmm. that we saw in the animated series. As the rulers touch down, the protesters at the fence are riled into a frenzy. They shout at the two outsiders to leave the South Pole, waving their signs and just losing their minds. Zuko comments that after everything the Fire Nation put them through, he can't blame them for this reaction. Sokka greets the two and the group begin moving into the city. Kue using Bosco's bear hug for warmth. It's kind of cute, actually. He's like, Bosco, come here. Do you mind? And Bosco just like gives him a big hug from behind. And then they like waddle together into the city. I want a Bosco (laughs) hug so bad. I know, right? The only note I have about this page is I wish they put Bosco in a little snowsuit. Oh, that would be so cute. He doesn't need it, but I because he's a bear, he's covered in fur, right? We established that. That's why he's keeping Kue warm. But I think that wouldn't be beneath the Earth King to like put him in a little snowsuit because it's cute. (laughs) Yeah. It's like all of those dog owners putting their dogs in elaborate outfits for like rain and snow and cold. And that's what. Yeah. So quick aside, when we first got my dog Pippin, my Mm -hmm. wife bought her all these little snow suits and stuff because she was like, oh, she comes from West Virginia. That's usually warmer than it is up here. So like she's going to be cold. We Uh didn't realize that my dog is 25 percent husky. So she's never cold. (laughs) So we just had all of these jackets that are just like with cute little little fake fur hoods and stuff like that. But yeah, like that. Like give give Bosco a little Just like that. Yeah. Actually, would it be? It might be culturally insensitive. Maybe Kuei is ahead of us because if he puts them in like water tribe garb, that might be the the southern water tribe. I don't. That's what I was thinking. I don't think he would do that. But like, well, really, I was thinking of like a little puffer jacket. Yeah, but that's still Southern Water Tribe because he's, okay, he's actually, not or, or Northern. It's it's Water Tribe either way because Kuai's not wearing that. He's just wearing like a little shawl 
with some fur. Yeah. The design, you're right. Yeah. The design, not having like fur on fur. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but having having a design that's Earth Kingdom yeah. inspired, just like warmer. I mean, we see that kind of all over the place. Toph is wearing basically her outfit, but with more layers and a fur neckline and like things that are a little bit warmer. That kind of thing. Yes. But I guess I was also picturing like that scene from A Christmas Story where the little brother gets yes. bundled up and like it's wrapped in a scarf Absolutely. up to his nose. That too. would be so cute for Bosco. He wouldn't <laughs> need it, but... Oh, but he's not. He's just a bear. Yeah. Yeah. The only non-hybrid animal. <laughs> it still can't just get a bear. over it. Yep. Just a bear. Just a bear. <laughs> not a platypus bear. Nope. Not Not any kind of bear. Just a bear. Just a bear. <laughs> As the three and Bosco walk from the landing area, a protester yells at Sokka, accusing him of having been abroad too long and claiming to have forgotten his place. Sokka does not reply and simply urges Zuko and Kue to keep walking. In prison, Gilok asks the guard standing watch outside his cell if the rumor of Hakoda inviting foreigners into the country to attend a conference is true. The guard confirms, adding that they arrived an hour before. Gilok then asks the guard if he heard his speech to the tribe the night before. When the guard answers yes again, Gilok presses him about his loyalty to a traitor like Hakoda. The guard disagrees with this, saying Hakoda has a vision for the future. Gilok demands to know if the guard stands with the South or with Hakoda's so-called future. And when the guard replies that he believes they can have both, Gilok stands and uses his hidden key to open his cell door. He knocks the guard unconscious and finds his way to Thod's cell to free his brother in the cause. I will say it's probably the only nice thing I have to say about Grimlock over here. Grimlock, yeah. Uh-huh. He's a big man. He is large. Speaking of bears. Yeah. He's basically as big as Bosco. Oh, yeah. So I do like this panel where he knocks out his prison guard because they do a really good job at playing at that angle of how uh-huh. he's standing closer to the camera where the camera would be, I guess. So he looks large anyways. And we have a nice dynamic angle going on. And Mm -hmm. the other guy is like reaching for his boomerang, like looking scared. And then we just get a silhouette, single punch knockout. (laughs) One punch man. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) And it's very nice. It's very intimidating. I just wish I didn't hate this man as much as I do. And it's not not like, not even like I'm supposed to hate him in the way that I hate him. Yeah. Everyone knows our thoughts on this man and what should have happened, but. It's a very beautifully drawn page, and I'm going to miss pages it is. like these. It is well done. Yes. But to your point, it's just bad guy doing bad guy stuff. And not even like... <laughs> For reasons. Yeah. It's, TM. It's like, I keep on trying to circle my brain around Gilok, and I right now I'm at the point where I'm looking at Zhao and why I like Zhao so much, and it wasn't just his ridiculous mm. sideburns. It was, he was a very multifaceted villain. And I really enjoyed mm-hmm. that about him. And Gilok is just like, if you're not with me, you're my enemy. And I'm like, all right, Anakin, calm down. No one likes you this much. <laughs> no one's on your side. There's nothing sympathetic about Gilok to me. Yeah. No, I agree. Those are all the reasons why I have a problem with it too. And from a writing standpoint, we've talked about this, yeah. but if Bato yes. was Gilok, we would have so many really complicated, interesting mm-hmm. scenes to work through because it's like you're rooting for him because mm-hmm. he's Bato, but at the same time, he's doing things that are not in the best interest of everyone. And like, it would be so complicated rather than yeah. like Mr. Kool-Aid man being like, ha, yes. I'm here. I actually thought, I was thinking about this a couple of days ago, just a random musing popped into my head. What if it was Bato, but flipped? So what if Bato was the chief now? And Hakoda oh, was head of the guerrilla faction trying to preserve the old ways. That would be really interesting, too, because his That'd son be is so about the future. Yeah. There'd be so much conflict there. But now we just get Keylock. Uh-huh. I can't say no, his name actually, that would... stain. <laughs> <laughs> I know. No, that would be so interesting because I'm thinking about it. Like, Hakoda is obviously very open to the thought of collaborating with other nations. Mm. What if Bato having fought by his side all these years was like Katara and was like, okay, war is over. Fire Nation is defeated. We can go back to our lives, get back to the way things used to be. And then Hakoda would be like, no, we need to expand. We need to collaborate. We need to get out there and join with the other nations. Mm -hmm. And the South is following Bato because most of the Southerners don't want foreigners in their lands. Yeah. 
And so then it would turn into Team Avatar helping Hakoda open things up mm-hmm. and all of that drama. That would be so interesting. There's so many more interesting ways the story could have been told about expansion and coming to terms with it and, you know, what to do when you're fighting against your own people, your own brothers and sisters and friends. Mm-hmm. But no, we get yep. Gilock. Gridlock. Gridlock over here. <laughs> I'm going to gridlock in my brain, this man. Oh, yeah. Well, we're stuck with them. So, well, only for 50 more pages. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Across the city, Hakoda presents his plan for the modernization of the South to the two visiting leaders. He asks Zuko and Kuei for funds to assist in this expansion, citing the South's suffering economy as the biggest reason for why they can't do it on their own. Zuko is quick to agree to support, adding that he's grateful for the opportunity to help the South rebuild, but Kuei is more hesitant. He notes that the Earth Kingdom has many needs of their own, but perhaps if he showed his advisors that the Southern Water Tribe is making measurable, concrete progress towards civilization. Upon hearing this, Katara is offended, and Kuei awkwardly backpedals. He assures her that his wording was just clumsy. Like, of course they already have a form of civilization. The Earth Kingdom would simply want them to achieve a higher form. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. His words do little to temper Katara's anger, but before they can go any further in the conversation, a guard rushes into the room to warn them of Gilok's escape. Within seconds, Gilok and a small group of Southern Water Tribe warriors enter the room. Those soldiers in the back are very large. Yeah, they are. I wonder if Gilok specifically recruited the biggest warriors he could find. Actually, they're bigger than him. They're much larger than him. They're huge. That's insane. He's so big already. We were saying he was large. So I would say probably Gilak is a good 6'3". I'd say so. Yeah. Around there, right? And those guys are like seven foot, like, like, honestly. Seven something. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Jeez. In my mind, if I were to come up with a background for those two, they're his mm-hmm. twin sons. That's what I would think. Oh, perfect. Okay. <laughs> Headcanon confirmed. Head cannon. I love it. That's all. I mean, we're never going to see this again. They don't even have proper faces the way they're drawn, but that's yeah. just my mind. The way they're standing behind him, they're very with him. They got to be in some way. Uh huh. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. And Gilak has some giantess wife somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yep. So good. To go back to what Kuei was saying, though, it's such a Kuei thing. I kind of like how he clumsily goes into this judgment of the Southern Water Tribe because it's such a Kuwait thing to do. I'm thinking back to the animated series when they first met him. It just all of his like hoity-toity, ew, dirty, mm. keep my hands clean. Things are proper and things are a certain way kind of personality and, and way that he rules. Yeah. How he goes to like the third ring and is like, eh. Mm. I still would have liked to see a little more. You're right. That is who he was when we first met him. Yeah. But then he traveled the Earth Kingdom for a very long time. Yeah, it is a callback very much to his personality before. Yeah. It doesn't really make room for his growth since he traveled. Yeah. And that's what we're really looking for in the comics is character growth. Yeah. I wonder if he visited the Southern Water Tribe in his travels. I doubt it, but I still think he would have lost some of that, if not all of that. Aristocratic. Yeah, like pampering. Snottiness. Snottiness. Yeah, yeah, that's the perfect way to put it. Uh-huh. But he just has it again. So, I don't know, head cannon. I can wrap my brain around. He got back to his cushy life and just immediately reverted to who he was because mm-hmm. it's easy. Mm-hmm. But I would have liked to see a little more a little more character development with Kuei. Because that's why, like, if you think about it from a standpoint as fans, right? Like a viewpoint as fans, we're reading these because we want more out of these characters. We don't want the exact same. We want to see them grow and evolve. So at least for me, like, I like being the guy that's just like, actually, did you know that eventually Kuei becomes quite rugged and manly and super strong? And then he's not so pampering. Like, that's a bad example. But that's why I like to read these things. So then when... My friends are having a conversation. They haven't read this. I can impart on them a little bit of knowledge mm. that's like, this is what happened to your favorite character afterwards. And they yeah. can know. Probably why we both have a podcast about Avatar The Last Airbender, because we like imparting these facts and knowledge and head cannons and theories and trivia and casting, yeah. right? And I think they're shooting themselves in the foot with Kuei on this one. And it's easy to do because he's an idiot. He always is portrayed to be. But I would like to see a smidge more growth. Mm-hmm. We're basically craving like Katara and Zuko stories for everyone. Like, yeah. give us the big amount of growth. Show us the before yes. and after. Yeah. 
Give us the ultimate makeover. Although maybe that's the point. Maybe what Yang is trying to say, just play devil's advocate against myself here, mm-hmm. adults just get stuck in their own mindset. And it's really the kids will evolve mm. to a certain point and eventually they become adults and then they get stuck in that mindset. And then their kids, it's like the circle of life, but with yeah. character development. The back in my day. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Eventuality. So maybe Yang's <laughs> trying to say that is you reach a certain point in your acceptance in your mind or whatever and then you lose touch, you lose track, you're out of it. Yeah. Then it's up to the younger generation to bring you up. And very few cases is that not applicable. I think Iroh and Boomy, basically, I think anyone in a member of the Order of the White Lotus, I think would be exempt from that. Yeah. But everyone else is kind of like just going with the flow. I would say that any member of the White Lotus and people like Team Avatar were open-minded from the beginning. Mm-hmm. So that's a trait that they don't really lose sight of. They don't really lose... But Aang isn't even open-minded himself. He flip-flops. He flip-flops he definitely quite does. a bit. Yeah. <laughs> he has blind sides. Yes, absolutely. Because he, I mean, it's for the better, right? But he refuses to kill Ozai. Mm-hmm. That's an extreme example, but he was very set in his ways in that. He's like, I'm definitely not doing that. Whereas he didn't even entertain the thought of what would happen if he killed Ozai. Yeah. We are definitely like going into literary criticism yeah, we are. here. <laughs> Like reading into we are. potential messages of the author that probably weren't even in their Definitely minds. Definitely not in but their minds. But it's fun. This is why I love literary criticism. With Earth King Kuai, this, I can almost guarantee, I'm going to say with 99.9 repeating percent certainty, that Yang did not mean Kuai to be <laughs> a message on how the older you get, the less you're willing to change. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh, I agree. Yeah. But the interpretation is there for you to grab if you want it. If you want it. So we did. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we're about to go into an action scene because Gilak and his group of Southern Water Tribe warriors enter the room along with his head cannon, two giant sons in the background. And Zuko, Aang, and Katara immediately go on the offensive and a battle breaks out. Toph soon joins in with a tricky distraction using her space rock, which I love. There's like a, a warrior who's about to attack her and she shows him her space rock and he's like, what is that? And then she makes it into a rock hand and like slaps him with it. I love that thing. Yeah. It's nice to see that she still has it. Yeah. Akoda orders his own soldiers to get the Earth King and Melina to safety through the other side of the room. But before they can make a move, Thod and his chi blocking students crash through the windows. Thinking Gilak is after the other leaders, Hakoda stands before him and bravely states that Gilak will have to go through him to get to them. Elex snidely explains that he didn't come to attack the foreigners. He came for the real enemy, Hakoda. Todd. Oh, Hakoda. <laughs> the two begin fighting and Gilak adds that his time in prison allowed him to see that Hakoda is the root of all their problems. He is too weak to lead them. The Southern Water Tribe needs a leader who's strong, a leader like himself. He punches Hakoda in the face and knocks him out, allowing Gilak to seize him and flee with his people. So... Gilak is basically one punch man. This is the second time he's punched someone in the face and knocked him out immediately. Mm-hmm. I do re- really like his sword. His sword is perfectly Gilak. It has the Absolutely. unnecessary teeth. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm calling it a bone sword. <laughs> oh, We're going to okay. use that descriptor soon, but I agree. It's very vicious, yeah. savage looking. Picture this for anyone who hasn't read the comics. It's like a machete, the length of a machete, but curved a little bit kind of like a scythe and it has bones protruding from the sharp end Mm. so it is savage looking yeah and he gets that savage look in his eyes when he's attacking the art is beautiful coming from goody hero but it's i just don't like okay sorry move on let's move on (laughs) yep ang and katara rush after them but are blocked by soldiers who stayed behind ang using his airbending takes katara into his arms and flies over their heads and out the front doors of the building he drops Katara to the snow and she uses waterbending to knock Gilak to the ground. Aang catches Hakoda, but in the confusion, Gilak is able to slip away. It isn't until they get back to the others that the group realizes that Earth King Kuei has been kidnapped. So I almost wonder if that was like a consolation prize. It's like we didn't get Hakoda, but we got the Earth King. Yeah, probably. I don't think it was part of the plan. No, it absolutely was not. I just never thought I'd ever hear the words kue and prize in the same sentence. <laughs> That's what threw yep. me off. I was like, what? what? Uh, oh. And then my brain went first bed. Yeah, no, they definitely were not trying to get kue, but they got him. They got something. They got him. Yeah. 
Plan B. Mm-hmm. Team Avatar spends that evening looking for the Lost King as Hakoda rests alongside Melina in a worried Bosco. When the kids return, they don't have good news. It seems Gilok and his people fled into a maze of underground tunnels. Tunnels that go on for miles. It will take too long to search through them, so Team Avatar returned to regroup. Katara and Momo reveal a fishy treat they brought back for Bosco, which distracts the bear for a moment from his worries. Just then, a messenger hawk arrives and delivers a ransom note from Gilok. His conditions? To exchange Earth King Kue for Hakoda. I did feel really bad for Bosco. I know, me too. He's doing that, like, that dog routine where your owner leaves and they're just, like, looking out the windows and pacing. And, like, I can imagine him making, like, worried grunting sounds. Yeah, and then when Aang comes in, he's like, he, like, immediately looks at the door hoping it's Kue, but it's not. Poor guy. So sweet. Yeah. I also love that Momo gave him the fish. I know. It's so unlike (laughs) Momo. I know. Well, I, I guess Momo doesn't eat raw fish. He mostly eats fruits and nuts and stuff. But that's true. Yeah, it's cute. He's like perching on the edge of a sofa or like a couch and holds up this half of a fish. And Bosco's like, ah, he's just so I've never really considered Momo that cute in the animated series, to be completely honest. Like he's uh-huh. kind of cute, but not like Appa is cute. Right. Right. But the way Kuti Hero draws Momo in this panel is a adorable his eyes are just so large and he's holding out a little treat and so cute he's so cute yep Sokka takes the message from his father and reads it adding aloud that the exchange is supposed to take place at the bridge of no return a place where the village used to deal with their criminals Katara explains the history of the bridge saying that if anyone in the village ever did anything unforgivable they would be forced to walk across the bridge never to return Sokka cites Gilok's conditions that the exchange will take place on the hanging rope bridge after everyone has been chi-blocked. Any funny business in the rope bridge will be cut. Zuko comments that there's no way Gilak won't cut the bridge, even if they give in to all of his demands. Gilak wouldn't pass up on an opportunity to get rid of two of his enemies at once. When Aang and Katara are startled by this, Zuko shrugs and admits that he knows how bad guys think after being one. That made me laugh. Yeah, because he just delivers this completely brutal strategies, right? Straight face, not even concerned. And everyone's like, you monster. And he's like, yeah, I used to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a great comedic moment. Yeah, it was very good. Hakoda tells them that there's no way he can allow them to go through with the chi blocking. But Aang insists they'll come up with something. He turns to Sokka, their idea guy, and asks what that something is going to be. Sokka grins and replies he thought they'd never ask. Okay, I take small offense to this. Mm-hmm. For some reason, Yang wrote, not idea guy, but planner guy. He didn't use the actual term that we've been using the entire time in the series. So I just replaced it in my summary because he's an idea guy. It's weird. Not a planner guy. I'm going to say this. It's very obvious that Acorn and I aren't the largest fans of North and South. It's not our favorite of the Goody Hero Yang collaborations. But I do feel like they both checked out on this issue. It kind of seems like it. Maybe more Yang than Gurihiru because the art is very solid. Some of it, but even look at Yang's profile in that panel. Oh, mm-hmm. got a little like Pac-Man influence going yeah, on. Yeah, and look at the panel, the middle panel above that and the three panel. Look at Sokka, top down three quarters view. Uh-huh. The further we get into this book, the more and more checked out they both get. <laughs> Makes me wonder what other deadlines they were working yes. on. Yes. Yeah, they're like, obviously working on different things. If they things, had other comics they that did. they're like really focused on. And this yeah. is not uncommon in comic books. Like if you look at each panel, like its own very detailed piece of work, you're going to be disappointed because they're heavy, strict deadlines. Everyone's working as fast as they can. I get it. They've also been working on this series for a very long time. So they're probably mm-hmm. feeling some form of burnout. And I get that. I cannot do any better. If I could, I would be doing it. (laughs) But I just thought it was funny that it's just the further it gets along, you start seeing these a little bit more. Maybe it's because we're looking at it more closely now because we've built up such a fondness for this team up. I think so. Yeah. 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 But what are you going to do? Nothing. That's why, you know, (laughs) deadlines in the world of anything, anything media can suck sometimes Mm -hmm. because it adds unnecessary pressure or catches people at times in their life when they're just not really ready. Anxiety. Jiving with the content. Yeah. 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 So that's why we're going to have our favorites and these will be there. Yep. For sure. (laughs) When they get to the bridge of no return, it and the other side are empty save for two glowing torches. 
Aang kisses Katara on the cheek and tells her not to worry because Sokka's plan is perfect. Sokka approaches his sister and notices her face, asking what's wrong. She admits that this wasn't how she imagined their trip back home. She always assumed that the South Pole would go back to normal after the war, that their lives would go back to the way things used to be. Sokka asks her if it's possible they don't know what normal is. Nobody alive knows what things were like before the war, not even Grand Grand. What if the South Pole Katara is imagining never actually existed? Before Katara can reply, Aang spots Gilok and his people on the other side of the bridge. Earth King Kue nervously stands with them. The chi blockers are sent over and Team Avatar allows themselves to be chi blocked. Even Sokka is blocked, which he takes as a compliment. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm flattered. I'm kind of flattered. Falls to the ground with a big smile on his face. Yeah. Thod urges Hakoda to begin crossing while Gilok pushes Kue onto the bridge from the other side. The two rulers make their way closer to the middle, Hakoda calling out encouragement to a nervous Kue. Just as they reach the middle, Gilok begins cutting the rope just as Team Avatar expected. But this is all part of Sokka's plan. An icicle juts out of the ground and knocks the bone sword out of Gilok's hands. Melina appears, soon joined by Toph's metalbending students. When Gilok demands to know who they are, the Dark One waxes a poetic introduction that confuses the Southern Tribe warrior. The team uses that distraction to metal bend the warrior's weapons into useless shapes, while Melina sweeps them off their feet with her waterbending. On the other side of the bridge, Team Avatar takes their cue and leap to their feet, waterbending and earthbending Thod and his disciples into blocks of ice and rock. Thod is shocked at their ability to bend and asks how it's possible. Sokka reveals that each of the benders, and himself, are wearing chainmail armor underneath their furs. It was an invention of his own design that the students of the Beifong Metal Bending Academy made. The chainmail prevented them from losing their bending and completely turned the tables on Gilok and his followers. That makes no sense. <laughs> I was thinking, like, the clothing is not thick enough that you wouldn't feel solid yeah. metal underneath. I feel like chi blocking, you'd have to kind of feel the joints and, like, give of the skin and the muscle to know where you're poking yes yeah it doesn't make so. sense this is the worst plan ever you <laughs> remember remember when i said how everyone's just checked out at this point you know what we're dealing with here <laughs> what literal plot armor oh, oh that made me hurt i respect <laughs> it so much but man did that make me hurt <laughs> Yeah, that was my first thought. It was at once, ooh, clever idea, followed by, wait, that wouldn't work for chi blocking. You want to know what my thought was? What? I hope there's not something as stupid as wearing armor. And then it was. Oh, no, you saw it coming. I was just like, how do you block this armor? No, they'll feel it. Guess not. Yeah, no. Okay, here we go. We're going to rationalize our way through okay, this. Okay, let's do it. They're not wearing gloves, so maybe their fingers are cold and they were working off of muscle memory and knowing like where all of the chi blocking points are and they just didn't realize. They just didn't feel it. I don't know if I can follow that one. <laughs> you would feel it more if you weren't wearing gloves. Because it would be like bonk ow. Yeah. Like at least gloves would add the extra padding. That's true. Then you really couldn't feel it. Right. I don't, yeah. I don't, I don't know. Eh. I, I guess maybe. No, but this doesn't make sense either. I was going to say if Ty Lee was there and she could be like behind the scenes that we don't see. This is how I chi block. This is how I know it's successful. This is how I feel it. Mm. They could have the armor because it's chainmail armor. So it's fairly flexible, fairly, even though mm -hmm. it doesn't look it in this, but they say it's chainmail. So I'm going to go with what's written versus what's actually displayed. Maybe they could fashion it in such a way that it feels no different to chi mm -hmm. blockers if you do it, but it's not because it's just metal sewn together. Like not even mm -hmm. metal rings. It's like metal plates. It's metal plates, which is not chain mail. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I'm going to move on because we only have a couple more pages left and it's not worth <laughs> the frustration I have at this point. On the other side of the bridge, Melina asks Gilok to surrender, but he refuses. He charges onto the bridge with a torch and begins burning the support ropes, yelling, for the tribe! Melina rushes after him, but can't stop him before the ropes begin to burn. Zuko sees this and extinguishes the flames, but not before the rope is damaged to the point of breaking. The rope snaps and the bridge gives way with Gilok, Earth King Kue, Hakoda, Melina, and Zuko still on it. Each of them manage to hold on to the wooden slats of the bridge and begin climbing up to safety. 
Zuko takes Kuei's hand and uses his firebending to jet them up to the ledge. But before he and the rest of Team Avatar can do anything to save the rest, the stone supports of the bridge begin to give way. Toph does her best to stabilize them while Katara creates an ice ladder down the side of the cliff. She and Aang descend, giving Aang a better angle to use his glider. But even with Toph's bending, the stone supports begin to slide into the snow and the bridge collapse. Aang grabs Akota's hand, who holds onto Melina's, who holds onto Gilok's. Aang struggles to fly them to safety as Gilok twists and turns at the bottom of the human chain. Gilok calls up to Hakoda saying, I told you, Hakoda, even if I have to lose, you won't win. He raises his bone sword to cut Melina's arm, but she releases him. They watch him fall, screaming into the abyss. Good. <laughs> That's where Greg's like, good riddance. The best part of the book, finally. <laughs> to pause right here and come full circle with our what if it was Bato conversation. Mm. I also feel like that would be a lot more emotionally impactful if it was like, I personally feel Bato could be swayed. Eventually, he would come over and it would just take some really personal convincing to get him on their side. Yeah. But if for some reason he goes ultimate villain and you can't reason with him, or if it was just an accident, that would really suck if he died accidentally. Yeah. And it felt like a necessary thing, like let one person die to save the rest kind of philosophical situation, you know? I'm convinced that this whole scene would not have happened if it was Bato. Yeah, agreed. This whole scene, and even taking Kue, I kind of had this like small moment where I was like, this is probably why they didn't use Bato's because they kind of knew that this is the direction that it was going in. And I think Yang just really wanted just a straightforward villain. And we just aren't used to that in the world of Avatar. Yeah. Like we, maybe I'm speaking for everyone here, but I think that we as the audience really like how everything is a bit more complex than it seems. And if you want to scratch at the surface and dig down a little bit more, there's something there for you with mm -hmm. 99% of the characters. Ozai is, is the 1%. exception. <laughs> and maybe Sozin. I would still be very interested to see what happened in Sozin's life that got him to be from a naive young man to wanting to take over the world. Right. I'm very curious that, but yeah, Ozai is basically the exception in this. And now Gilok. It's just, mm -hmm. it's not interesting. And this arc isn't saying anything different than we haven't already heard before. Right. It's an extension of Anakin, you know? Yeah, yeah. Even if I have to lose, you won't win. Yeah, it's just, it's boring. It's been done many times before. But I'm convinced this is why they didn't use Bato. It's just they knew this yeah. is the direction they wanted to go in. So they did what we do in Secret Podcast. And they watched an episode. They picked a random person out in the background. And they said, this is who this is. This is what he's going to be. This is his story. And they put it in. And now it's, yep. it's actually canon. And it's just a shame. Because yeah. it would have been so much. It would, wouldn't have led to this conclusion. But it would have been a lot more interesting if it was Bato. And also, if for some reason it got to this scene with Bato... Aang would have suddenly remembered that he could earthbend and would have like jettisoned like a slide or a tunnel or something out of the side of that mountain and saved him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm realizing now like they're standing on a cliff. Why is no one bending like an earth bridge? All we've gotten from bending. Now I'm exaggerating. I understand this is for comedic effect. Everyone follow me on this journey. <laughs> All we've gotten out of the bending from Yang and Goody Hero are ramps and slides. And all of a sudden, when it comes to someone's <laughs> life on the line, everyone forgets that they can bend ramps and slides. <laughs> That's fair. We've gotten at least two slides yep. or ramps in every comic issue mm -hmm. up until this point. And now we got an ice slide. Yeah. They didn't want him to live. So he's just going to die. And I couldn't yeah. be happier. <laughs> this. Yeah. Oh, well. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> yep. With all of the swinging, Aang is beginning to lose his grip. Knowing that letting go would save Hakoda, Melina tells him goodbye and tells him that she loves him. But just as she lets go, Katara bends an ice path out over the expanse and catches her as she falls. There it is. My mouth is agape right now. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> what? Situational conditional saving. Oh my God. Bad guy has to die, even though we're the good guys. But Melina, we have to save her. She's part of the group. They already cashed the check. They're just like, let's finish this up. Hurry up. Let's go. <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> sorry, anyone who really enjoyed so this. Sorry. We just get too passionate and too, yes. too critical in using 
the original series and the thought and the detail that was put into it as a ruler for mm-hmm. everything else Avatar that we ingest. And I know I've said this before and I'll repeat it. The very fact that we get so critical about this is, I think, a testament to Gurihiru and Yang's work together, their collaboration. Mm-hmm. I think that if we didn't truly enjoy their work, we would just be like, whatever. Like, right. we'll just read our summary. We'll give you some facts and there's like none in this. And then we'll be on our way. We'll, you know, tip the hat and shake your hand on the way out, maybe give you a hug and that'll be it. But no, like we both really enjoyed and will continue to enjoy, I hope, (laughs) our comics run. And the fact that we, I don't know, I'm losing my my steam here. I'm just... No, let me pick up then because you're right. Like I will always, always cry reading their earlier comics. They were that exceptional. Mm -hmm. And they blew me away and they gave me such appreciation, newfound appreciation for the comics, which I had never read before, aside from like two issues. Yeah. And so to go through that transformative process and be like, oh my God, look at the intention, look at the world building, look at the the setup to the future, to Korra, to read that and then to get to this with some almost nameless, faceless villain who just does the villain thing and then goodbye gets offed. It's kind of like a culture shock. Yeah. We'll talk about this a little bit more when we recap all the comics in three or four episodes. But the comics have given me some of my favorite characters, not just Mm -hmm. like in the comics, but I mean, out of everything that we've read and watched and covered so far. Yeah. They gave me Fakir, who I am in love with that man. He is wonderful. (laughs) He is the most sad, sap, amazing character. And there's something about him that we first saw him in the main series that like drew me to him. And then I uh-huh. think it was the same thing with Yang because he just picked right up. It was like, okay, here's the backstory. Here's everything. You were right. And I was like, oh man, this is great. Yep. And the search was just like, oh man, just so yeah, good. Yeah, fantastic. Oh, I loved Ursa before. And Icom. And I had only, yeah, Ikum, Ikum, Ikum. Ikum. Oh my God. Fantastic. Yes. And we're like, we're now going into the direction of like comic recap discussion, which I'm so glad you brought up because I am so excited to I read know, them again too. and to have a conversation about all of them. But obviously they really made an impact on us. Yeah. Even even Katara the Pirate Silver. I love that pirate queen. Oh, she was so cool. I stand her. She's amazing. Yeah. So like, you're right. There have been so many great comic impactful moments for us yes. that that is why we're getting so passionate and critical so yeah take that apology if you'd like yes please <laughs> again say this we'll move on just because we don't like something doesn't mean that you liking it is lesser absolutely 100 percent. if this is your favorite comic amazing yeah absolutely we support that yes good for you yeah yes So jumping back into this action scene, Katara has just bent an ice path out of the expanse and caught Melina as she was falling. The impact actually shatters the furthest side of the ice bridge. So they're not out of harm's way yet. They have to scramble back over towards the wall where the ice bridge is the safest and most secure. And that is where Melina breathlessly thanks Katara for saving her life. Aang manages to glide Hakoda to safety. And finally... Everyone can breathe easy. Few. Yeah, few. Big few. (laughs) After the ordeal, the next day or a couple days later, Katara and Sokka visit their mother's grave. Katara talks to her mother, telling her that she felt courageous when saving Melina and muses that maybe her courage came from Kaya, which is perfect Mm because that is exactly what you said, Greg. Their courage comes from their mother. Yes. Katara accepts that it may be impossible for things to go back to the way that they were supposed to be because along with that potentially not even existing, the way things used to be would also include their mother being alive. Katara reveals that she is no longer uneasy about the change because now she can keep her mother as a symbol of the old Southern Water Tribe and she will always be with her. Just then, Aang followed by Siku and Sura approach them. And Katara tells the girls about how her mother sacrificed herself, not only to save Katara, but also the Southern waterbending style. Moved by her story, the sisters decide to show Katara a display of their bending power, which is kind of amazing for not having any lessons. These little girls just kind of, I mean, this is really like a, like a frozen moment, like Elsa just kind of playing with her bending as a kid and coming up with all these like really cool things. Like that's essentially what they did and they got very good at it. Yeah. Later that day, Kana, Paku, Hakoda, Melina, Kue, and Bosco gather in the main room of Kana and Paku's hut. While Aang, Katara, Toph, and Zuko are in the kitchen cooking, 
Tana remarks that it feels very wrong to her to have other people using her kitchen. And she is told, just enjoy it, just for one night. Hue mentions to Bosco that the warmth and care given to them by the citizens of the Southern Water Tribe is about the highest form of civilization they can get. They're all joined by Team Avatar soon enough, who each bring a special dish from their respective nations. And the group, the family, the extended friends share this meal together. The end. Mm-hmm. That is a very nice page to leave off on. Everyone just enjoying each other's food and culture and company. Yes. And this, I think, calls back to the cookbook, too, because Aang made steamed tofu. Katara made northern style seaweed stew. Mm-hmm. Toph made braised turtle duck. And Zuko made extra spicy fire noodles. I love how it's extra spicy. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder how many people at the table will be able to handle that. I don't know. The other small, very small note I want to point out, Bosco and Zuko are sitting next to each other. And they're looking at each other like they're table mates. Like, hey, bud. Hey, bud. And I like that because Dante Bosco did the voice of Zuko. And that's just like a nice (laughs) little meta knowledge. Uh Uh-huh. It's really cool. Bosco and Bosco. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. So that is the final issue of North and South. It is also our final issue of our Yang and Gurihiru team so everyone take a moment of silence. Hmm. Sorry, supposed to be uh, silent. <laughs> breathing is acceptable. Okay. <laughs> Greg, how about our MVP of this issue? I guess by definition, it would have to be Sokka. Uh-huh. The idea guy. The planner guy. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> because he, you know, it, without his idea, no matter how unbelievable it may be that it worked, worked and it mm-hmm. saved the day. So mm-hmm. I think my MVP... Yes, it's got to be Sokka. I can't think of a reason for anyone else. Yep, I'd have to agree. Yeah. All right. Well, there we go. That was nice and easy. Good job, idea guy. You still got it. Mm -hmm. Still got the idea juice. Mm -hmm. What about the moral of the issue? Plot armor always works. (laughs) Deus Ex Machina. Deus Ex Machina. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Yep. Yeah. When in doubt, plot armor it out. Yeah, I guess the bad guys lose plot armor or something in there, but this Uh didn't seem very moral heavy. It didn't, which I think also goes back to what we were saying about how the good Avatar stories seem to have multiple layers of meaning. Yeah, They seem to inform and enhance the knowledge that we have. This just was like a story, you know? It was just like a beginning, middle, and end. We had a kidnapping, we had a battle, we had a clever conclusion, and then the end. Yes. I guess maybe if, okay, thinking about that last page, making my brain really work here, you hear the gears are turning, I'm sure, even through the recording. (laughs) Culture is best shared with those you love. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Also, to expand on that, to add my own little extension, there is enough room for everyone's culture at the table. Yeah, that's good. That's much better said. Yes. Agreed. Which can apply to our present day. With if I can step up in a small short soapbox, a lot of times people get bent out of shape about other people encroaching on their space, their culture. Mm-hmm. But there is enough room for everyone. There is enough room for everyone to have their culture, for everyone to respect each other's cultures. And it's okay. We can all share the table. Yeah. Stepping off my soapbox now. Okay. All right. That is the end of this episode. That is the end again of our Yang Gurihiru journey. We're going to be heading into imbalance territory next with a new team. Yes. But but that is some weeks away. So in the meantime, where can they find you, Greg? Well, you can find me over at twitch.tv slash Bruce Greg on Monday and Friday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Currently, by the time this gets published, we're going to be done with Cult of the Lamb. But we have been playing Cult of the Lamb and it's been a lot of fun. We've had a lot of viewers be able to become a part of the the cute little cult that we've been building and me going through the dungeons and all that stuff. It's been a great time. I'm very excited because I think we're going to be playing Metal Hellsinger next, which is like tapping Ooh. into my like my like Metalocalypse, like metal devil crate. Like I'm very excited to play it. It was I played the demo <laughs> a while ago. It was so cool. It was so fun. The music's so great. That might be next. You can also find me on Twitter. A lot of people have. Mm-hmm. I've been tweeting up a storm lately. I don't know why. It's not like I've been making a like an effort to just be like, I want to tweet this amount of days. So There's just been like so much stuff coming out from Avatar from games that I'm looking forward to, to literally everything. So you can also follow me there at Booster Greg, or I don't know, just type in Booster Greg in Google and see what you get. See what happens. See what happens. (laughs) See what comes up. Let's light this candle. 
Nice. <laughs> you can also find me online by searching for Acorn Bandit. You'll probably see a lot of old stream stuff if you haven't already. Mm-hmm. But you can also find me online at joysons.com, which currently is going through a hiatus. We've mentioned this before in relation to our plans of releasing a season three pin. Once again, it is in the works. We're actually going to do a complete store overhaul. I have more details about that. We are shooting for the new year. I'm taking it in a completely different direction, following my heart with this. So we're moving away from the nerd pin area and going into general pins and new products that make my heart happy, which includes yarn and stuff. So we're going to have more details about that probably in the new year. But until then, you can find me online at Acorn Bandit. Coming up next time. Imbalance part one. That's right. See you all then on Avatar, Avatar, the the podcast. podcast. Avatar, the podcast is a proud part of the Geek Generation Network. Remember to check out all of our other podcasts at thegeekgeneration.com.